Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. You are listening to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast Network. For more great filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, head over to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Today's show is sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films, from predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them. The odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. In Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, I break down how to actually make money with your film projects and show you how to turn your indie film into a profitable business. With case studies examining successes and failures, this book shows you the step-by-step method to turn your passion into a profitable career. The book is available in paperback, ebook, and of course, audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. This is the Indie Film Academy podcast. Today, we're talking with James Cullen Bressack as part of our October Shockathon that's in November. So. <laughs> Welcome to the Indie Film Academy Podcast, where it's all about learning how to make and market your independent film online. And now your host, Jason Buff. Hey everybody, welcome to the Indie Film Academy Podcast. This is another episode in our October Shockathon in November. <laughs> so today I'm talking with a really inspirational filmmaker, James Cullen Brissac. He has, um, I think he's around 23 or something, and he's already made 11 feature films. He's one of the people that will tell you, you know, just get out there and start making movies. Even if your first one sucks, I mean, or, or whatever, you know, just get out there, start making movies, and start getting good, and, and you know, you, you can build a career that way. One thing that I thought was really interesting was a quote that he said from uh, John Carpenter, which was basically, if you want to be a horror filmmaker, just keep making horror films, and you'll eventually become kind of an industry into yourself. So I thought that was pretty interesting okay here's my interview with james cullen Brissett. really had the 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 nerve to to just say hey i'm gonna go for it and make something even though you might have had fears of of, of whatever kind so I, I i guess i guess it is story time then <laughs> 
Um, yeah, perfect. So, you know, I loved movies my entire life. Growing up, I was I was super into film. And, and then my dad got really sick when I was 12 or 13. He was having liver failure. And all him and I could do was watch movies because he was bedridden. Um, and then I started to realize at that point that, like, you know, film was such a you know, such a beautiful thing that anybody can share. And thankfully, my, my dad got better. He got a liver transplant. And then, you know, when my parents got divorced and I was going through a rough time from that, my mom lived right next door to a movie theater. So I would just walk to the movie theater every day and became like, you know, my sanctuary. Right. And mind you, like, you know, I decided like I was going to go into, I didn't originally go into film. I went into like the rave party scene and I started, you know, promoting events. And, and doing, you know, social media for DJs. And I was like, you know, first I started, there was a photography company that I was working for. And I was like, well, I want to get into all these events for free. So we offered the photography. So then everybody started coming to our website to get their photos. So then I started saying, okay, well, we could sell ad space on the website for, uh, for the event. So we started doing that because everybody was already going to the thing. Then I started going well, who likes getting their photos taken more than the DJs? So I started having people take photos of the DJs. And then so I started making connections with DJs. And then I started going, well, I could be like a booking agent for DJs and all this stuff. And I was partying really hard and really putting that together, like 15, 16, 17, like was really super intense with that. And actually started throwing events and, and building that up, <laughs> building up promotions and promotional skills. And mind you, I was, I was not, uh, what comes with partying is, is getting drunk and, and doing some drugs and stuff. And <laughs> I got a phone call from my, uh, from my grandmother, uh, saying that she saw photos of me on Facebook and was like, don't lie to me. You, you're Ooh, doing drugs. Damn. And I was like, no, I'm not. And she said, no, really don't lie to me. You're doing drugs. Like, I know you are. And I said, you know, no, I'm, I'm just like, you know, I'm making money and throwing these parties and stuff. And she was like, you know, what happened to you wanting to make movies? You said your entire life you wanted to make movies. So, you know, why aren't you doing that? And, you know, that really resonated with me. And she was like, you know, I'm going to send you money to make your, your first movie. You know, go out there and make a movie. You can always build a skyscraper from the top down, so do it. And I was like, okay. And so she sent me a check for $50. It was, you know, she's doing <laughs> Um <laughs> But it, it, was the, it was the sentiment that mattered to me. And so I started writing a script. Right, and I okay. that script and I was in uh, a junior college at the time, going to transfer to a, a, you know, a, a regular college eventually. But I was taking film classes in the junior college at SMC. And, you know, first couple of days in that class, I realized I was the only one who really, really cared about, you know, film and understood it. Um, you know, and, and understood the layers and, and what have you. A lot of people were just taking it as a elective class with it's easy. Um, and, you know, so I was writing a script and I told myself, Robert Rodriguez only needed $7,000 to make his first film. All I need is $7,000. If I could get $7,000, I'm going to drop out of college and, you know, make this movie. But I I put my life on track to do that. I stopped partying, just cut it all off and focused only on that. Took up a job at a sandwich restaurant. And I remember I had a, a meeting with a, a friend that was thinking about investing in the in the movie. And I also at the exact same time had uh, a shift at the sandwich restaurant. So I called <laughs> in and I said, you know, I can't come into work today. I have to go meet with my friend who's in some out of town uh, to finance a movie. And they're like, well, you know, the boss is on the phone and he's like, you, you know, you, 
that's ridiculous. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I, I, I really have to go do this. And he's like, like a real movie? And I was like, yeah, a real movie. And, uh, you know, it's like a, a $7,000 budget, but it's, you know, I'm going to make a real movie. And he goes, yeah, well, do you want to, do you want to go, you know, follow type dreams and make silly movies? Or do you want to have a job? Because if you don't show up, <laughs> you're not going to have a job anymore. And I said, right. I want to make movies. And I hung up the phone, obviously was fired, never went back there, but luckily, um, that friend financed the movie for, for $7,000. Um, and so I made my first movie for $7,000 and titled it My Pure Joy. Now, the, the interesting thing about that is My Pure Joy was the title of the events company and photography company that I was doing the rave promotions for. So throwing those events, doing the photography and all that stuff. And, you know, any given night we'd be pulling you know, 10 to 20,000 people to an event. Mm -hmm. So all those people saw the title, saw that I was involved, and, um, you know, I got support from DJs and stuff, and there's some music from that in the movie. But, <laughs> and the movie's not that great. But because of that and the promotional base I had built up in the rave scene, Either they thought it was a rave movie or they just recognized the title or something happened, but it got onto the bestsellers list on Amazon. Wow. Um, through the promotion and all that stuff. So 18 mm -hmm. years old, made my first movie, got onto the bestsellers list on Amazon, um, <laughs> and it was like number 32 in horror. It was like outselling the season of True Blood at the time. <laughs> that was on like DVD. It was, it, it was insane. Right. I never saw a dime of it, by the way, and that's a different story. My distributor totally screwed me over. But um, <laughs> what I did see is that these movies could find an audience. Mm -hmm. But regardless, even though it got onto the bestsellers list and yada, 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 and you know, looking back, I'm totally ashamed of that movie, but um, it didn't get me more work. And so okay. I was like, well, I need to make another movie. So I turned to the same investor. And I say, let's make another movie. And this time I go out and make a movie called Hate Crime. I was like, sound footage is really big. I'm going to do sound footage completely different. And so I did a home invasion sound footage film, which uh, ended up getting banned in the UK. One of like three movies in the past 15 years to be banned in the UK. Like it's an do. outright ban. Um, right. But it also plays film festivals. And I, I went the festival route this time instead of the, the, other, the other time because I was like, you know, more in tune with what I figured would work. And so it got a lot of press, um, but it didn't, uh, it didn't, you know, catch as much steam as I had wanted it to. Even though it had all this press, uh, it didn't get a big release. It, it, was that, was that the, the home invasion where the, the Nazis and all that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, correct. Right. And so, like, you know, there was a, a larger distributor that was interested in acquiring the film. Okay. We were talking about it, and it was going to get a big release because there was all this buzz from the festivals. And in the opening scene of that movie, the child gets shot in the face, you know, mm. which I, I thought was super shocking and stuff. But yeah. it was also probably the worst decision I had made for the film, because um, while we're in the middle of negotiations with a distributor, uh, Sandy Hook happened. Mm. And so... Nobody wanted to touch a movie that a child would get killed in because we just had this horrible tragedy that happened in the world. Right. You know, um, 
I'm not familiar. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with what happened at Sandy Hook, but somebody went into a, a yeah, yeah, yeah. So the movie stayed on a shelf after playing film festivals for like a year or two and then finally got released. Um, but it didn't, it didn't get the attention that I, I wanted it to. And it didn't, you know, it didn't get released how I wanted it to. And it wasn't getting any more work. And I was like, you know, I need to start getting hired for stuff. And so <laughs> I was, I was, doing all these interviews at the time and I had been preaching to every single person, you know, everybody says, you know, I, I want to make a movie. How do I do that? And I always said, go out there and make, one. you know, all that matters is the story. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't have a, a, a budget, make it work without the budget. Well, you know, I, I preached that so often as like, you know, when people said, how do you do this? I said, that's how you do it. And yet I was stuck with two movies and no career. And then I was like, well, I have $500, literally $500. And I don't own a camera, but what I do own is a cell phone. And a cell phone is a camera everybody has, mm-hmm. right? I had an iPhone. So I went out and I was like, I'm going to make a movie, be the first full-length feature on an iPhone, shoot it for the money that I had, Make follow, practice what I preach, basically. Follow that, like my my suggestion of like you know just pick out the camera and do it. All that matters is a good story. And with that, I made a movie called To Jennifer. And now To Jennifer got a whole bunch of publicity, played some film festivals, and everybody was fascinated by the fact that at that time I was like 19 years old, maybe turning 20. Everybody was like. A young kid makes movies on an iPhone for like no budget. Everybody thought that was the coolest thing in that mm-hmm. situation. It was marketable or whatever. And then from that, I had people contacting me to make movies. And from there, I've been able to somewhat sustain an indie career. <laughs> <laughs> so I now, mean, it's a long story, but I, I, uh-huh. I feel like people need all the details to understand the progression. So right. basically my suggestion to anybody is you have to, if you, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. And to be a filmmaker, you have to be insane because even though I had some success with my first two movies, it took me doing a third movie literally with an iPhone and no money to actually get get where I wanted to go. So mm-hmm. you have to have that never say die attitude and just keep driving. And, you know, sometimes it gets hard. Sometimes it gets really hard. And you, you're in a situation where you're like, you know, should I keep doing this? And the people that continue to do it are the ones that will survive in this industry. And that's what you have to do. You have to never, never say die and just keep pushing forward and ensure that you survive by fighting for your dreams. Were there moments before that when you were just kind of like, okay, maybe I should go back to the sandwich shop? You know? Oh my God. There were so many moments where I, <laughs> where I was like that. And so, uh, you know, everybody wonders, I have this, this tattoo on my knuckles that said life. And I mm-hmm. tattooed that on my knuckles because it was to get rid of my fallback. You can't have, you can't work a restaurant job if you have tattoos on your hands. So I was like, I'll tattoo this on my hands because this is what my life is. Like, you know, don't, don't do the fallback. I just have to keep moving and survive. 
Right. How important has the ability to, uh, you know, promote yourself played in your, your career? Have you used that or, or, I mean, can we talk a little bit about what happened after to Jennifer? I mean, are you more or less a director for hire now or how, how, what, what kind of work did you do after that? I mean, I know, I know the films that you've done, but how, so how did things change? It's, it's a little bit of both, you know, like, okay. um, so for thirteen, 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 which was the next one I did, um, I was asked... It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But MIDI Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. By Asylum to like and direct the movie, but it was within their parameters. You know uh-huh. what I mean? So, it, it, you know, what I've learned is I wouldn't say I'm a director for hire per se, although I do get hired to do stuff uh, that I didn't write as well. Like uh, a perfect example is Blood Lake, which I did for Animal Planet. I didn't write that. I was approached to direct it, and I, I did that uh, with it mm-hmm. started Christopher Lloyd and Shannon Doherty. Um, but the, uh, you know, I still create my own stories as well. Like Bethany is, is a, I, I, I wrote that with a writing partner and developed it. So it depends. Like people, sometimes people approach me and want me to write and direct and, and come from the ground up. And, and other times people just want me to direct. Um, and other times people just want me to write. So, you know, I, I just make myself available for that. So what I've learned is, um, you know, when, when other, more of other people's money becomes involved, then you have more opinions and more ideas. And so mm-hmm. you have to, it, it's more, it, it becomes more collaborative versus just a singular idea. Now that doesn't, that, I, I don't think that's a bad thing, um, but it, it is, it is what does start to occur. So 
Um, I, I definitely think that I try to keep everything within the wheelhouse of what I mentally uh, like to create. And I, I try to make movies that I would want to watch. Mm-hmm. Okay. How was it working with the, I've, I've uh, you know, had some relationships with the, the people over at the asylum. I actually did an interview with uh, um, the writer of Sharknado and, you know, I'm going to, I love their kind of business model, you know, in terms of, you know, we, we talk a lot about um, just trying to make, you know, building a career and the kind of dichotomy between making movies that you know will sell that are commercial and also trying to make really, you know, quality movies. You know what I mean? I think, you and, know, when, uh, you make a movie, when you make a movie for the asylum, you're making a movie for the asylum. However, like, you right. know, they're like the Roger Corman of this generation. Like, they, <laughs> yeah, they right. you know, you're, you're fitting into their cookie cutter mold, but you're also, you know, gaining a lot of experience and, mm-hmm. and you're also, you know, making something that is marketable. And so, you know, you're, you're following their mold, but I don't think that's, that's a bad thing per se. Like sometimes you have to do, you make like a movie for you and you make a movie for everybody else. You know what I mean? Uh, okay. And I, I think, I think nowadays with cameras being so accessible, we're past the time of, you know, people making like, you know, one or two or five movies. And then they're like, that's my career. It's now since movies are so much lower budgets to have a career, you have to continually make multiple films. And so to do mm-hmm. that, I think, you know, it, it's, 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 it's sometimes you do one for you. Sometimes you do one for them, but you have to <laughs> make sure that it fits within your world. Right. Okay. Now, can you talk a little, uh, I'm just curious since all this stuff is going on with back to the future, what it was like working with Christopher Lloyd. Oh, Christopher Lloyd was super awesome. He's a he's an awesome guy. He's a sweetheart, um, and he's, he's a very quiet really guy funny. as far as yeah, I yeah. He's, he's very quiet. He's very stoic. He, you know, and very friendly. Um, and was it intimidating to like be in that situation to have to direct actors that you kind of like had grown up with? Uh, you know, it wasn't intimidating per se, but I will mm-hmm. say it was, it was definitely nerve wracking because I had to keep telling myself don't ask him to quote Back to the Future. Like, over and over in my head, like, wow, because that was like my movie when I was a kid. Like, two movies I loved as a kid were Back to the Future and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He was in both uh-huh. of them. So I'm right. literally, you know, giving him direction and like, while I'm saying one thing, in my head the whole time, it's going, and don't say anything about a gigawatt. Don't say anything about, you know, a DeLorean. Just give me uh, one Marty. <laughs> Marty, Marty. Come on, I know you yeah. can do it. Yeah, he, he was he was uh, he was awesome. He was a great guy. Do you have any um, insights into like what you've learned in terms of dealing with actors and getting a good performance? Now that we're yeah, kind of just um, talking about actors, definitely. I think you know uh, I like to have uh, an open dialogue with all of my actors. And so, you know, um, I, I think the best performances come from when you can have that conversation and that dialogue with the actors. So, like, you know, I like to go through, uh, if the actor allows me to, go through the script with them, you know, mm-hmm. before we start shooting. So, like, you know, think of each character as a blank canvas. And, like, even if I wrote the script, I take my ideas about the character, 
and they take their ideas about the character and we throw them at the canvas. And whatever sticks for both of us is what we use to paint the picture of who this person is before, after, and underneath what is actually on the page. Because the, the script is only a blueprint. So finding that and, and, and connecting those little moments and those, those little motivations with the actor and finding out you know, who that actor is as a person and seeing what you could pull from their actual life into the character um, kind of allows it to be more of a real, fully rounded person. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did you study anything or read? I mean, how, how did you kind of like get to where you are, like learning how to deal with, with actors? Is there, I, I, one of the things I love to talk about is like resources where people kind of like can, can learn. I know there's a couple of good books out there about dealing with actors. I, I was just curious. I mean, I, I read a ton of books. Uh, I, you know, I only like reading nonfiction, so I'll read a lot of books on filmmaking and acting mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I will say I learned the most from just going out there and doing it, you know? So okay. I, I, I like to claim that my first film, even though I think it, as I've said many times now, that I'm, I'm not happy with it, um, mm-hmm. it, it, it was my film. So like going right. out there and making that movie was a crash course in like everything that I realized is wrong with how I make movies. And I'm like, I gotta do this different and I gotta do it better. And so I think I learn and grow each time that I make a movie. So, right. you know, it's, it's a trial and error sort of thing, I believe. And, um, it's also, you know, just, I, I, I feel like if, if you don't learn and you don't grow, then you're, there's no point in continuing to do it because you can't get better. Right. Now, what I want to do is kind of break up the process and what you do when you go through a film. And, and you know, uh, you know, I know your father was a, um, a or I don't know, still writing or, or is your, yeah, is your my, father? Yeah, my dad still writes. My dad, uh, okay. wrote, uh, you know, cartoons and stuff. And he still does. He was one of the writers. I, I was right. Okay. I was curious if you could talk about your process for writing, how you start with an idea, how do you get to your final draft of a screenplay, and and possibly some of the things that you learn from your dad. So, um, you know, I'll have an idea, and then I'll flesh that idea out into a treatment. And that treatment will become like a beat sheet. So it'll go like beat by beat what's going to happen in this movie. And then I'll take that and flesh that out into the first draft of the script. And that'll become more cohesive, and then like I'll start to rewrite what I've done, if that makes sense. Okay. Right. So, okay. you know, for me, when I have my idea, I always try to, you know, it comes in like a flash. I'll be like, oh, this is what, this is what the idea is. And usually I'll think of the idea and the ending. I always want to mm-hmm. know where I end, because if I know where I end, I know what I can fill in the middle. Okay. So I don't consider it an idea for a movie until I know what my ending is. Do you have any sort of, like, in terms of structure, how do you, like, do you just come up with something on your own? Do you use, like, uh, you know, some of the people that I've talked to who are, are screenwriters talk about, you know, they'll watch a film that's kind of similar to theirs and just, like, take bits and pieces of like where they're at at certain moments or whatever like that. I mean, and then there's other people that use like save the cat or the hero's journey and and things like that. I use, I use, I use the hero's journey, you know, the the warrior, the martyr, the wanderer, all that. Um, And, 
you know, I, I definitely, um, a lot of my ideas will come from, I'll, I'll look at like a poster for a movie mm-hmm. and I'll be like in my head, Oh, that's what this movie's about. And then I'll see the movie and the movie's not about that at all. And then I'll be like, well, then that movie doesn't exist. The one that I thought of in my head. So now I have an idea for a movie. I assumed <laughs> that this was what the movie was because I right. create the story from looking at what the artwork is. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, this is what this movie is. And then I watch right. it and I'm like, no, it's not that. So I can make that. Right. Yeah, I, I was just talking recently with the guy, um, uh, a guy that writes for Pixar and, and Disney. And, and he was I, I always wondered this about screenwriting, you know, people that are, you know, that's like their main thing is being a screenwriter. And I, and I asked him if he just sits there and watches movies and comes up with ideas. Like, you know, a lot of people think that like as writers, you're sitting there having ideas just out of nowhere. And he's like, no, I sit there and, and I'll watch a movie that's kind of similar to what I'm writing. But my brain is, is like so like creative or whatever that I start creating my own story as I'm watching that. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I definitely watch a lot of movies, for sure. It's it's important to keep, you know, keyed in with the demographic. Right. So after um, you made To Jennifer, can you talk about uh, a little bit about your career after that and, and lead us into kind of where you're at now? Um, I kind of, so after I made To Jennifer, uh, I talked with the guys at the asylum and got 13, 13, 13. Okay. And then after thirteen, thirteen, thirteen. Now, was that was that just like you you came in? There was a screenplay written, or did you that. did you wrote you wrote the screen? Okay. So and, basically, okay. as a kid, I went to Comic Con all the time uh, mm-hmm. with my dad while he was promoting Thinking the Brain and Animaniacs and all that stuff. And I used to buy a whole bunch of DVDs. Well, I always loved horror, and the people selling horror DVDs were the Italian. And so they'd have a booth at Comic Con, and I go up to them and buy a crap ton of DVDs from them. And so I, I, they remembered me. <laughs> and so I, you know, I was like, Hey, you guys remember a kid that bought a whole bunch of DVDs from you like over and over again at Comic-Con. And they were like, yeah. And I was like, well, I'm that kid, but I'm more grown up now. And I actually, make <laughs> can I right. make one for you guys? And so they, they decided to meet with me, and that's how 13, 13, 13 came about. Okay. And then uh, after 13, 13, 13... Uh, what was that, I mean, can you can you just talk about, like, that experience? Was that a different kind of filmmaking that you were... Than you? I mean, you, was, you go from making a movie on a... For sure. It was... Okay. To, they moved at a faster pace than I, I was used to. I, I had three days to write the entire script. <laughs> so from concept to sure okay i was given right. three days to write the script and then two days later i was going into production wow <laughs> it was like, it was like boom, boom, boom. that's kind of mind-blowing yeah. i know i was like what they're like hey you want to make a movie good you're making a movie see oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you movie. got three days <laughs> you got three days no, and I actually have a video somewhere on my like uh, like Instagram or whatever it is of me like uh, writing the script, and I'm literally like like you know hopped up on Red Bulls doing like you know like jittery like like fucking five in the morning, um, <laughs> just like hammering away at the script that I had three days to write. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, so you all right, we can move on to the to the next thing then. I mean, we I I'm going to go I'm going to come back and touch on a couple of uh topics that we're talking about, but what what uh, after that what was uh your next so the, film? Based and, off of all of the stuff I had done, I was approached mm-hmm. by Benetton Hillen to do a horror movie. They wanted me to write and direct a horror movie that would be based in Thailand. And that horror movie was pernicious. Um, So we started developing that, and we shot it a little later. Um, And then that one is actually now on Netflix, and it was uh, released limited theatrical in the States and did some film festivals around the world that flew to, like, Australia and stuff. Right. But um, it's, you know, uh, it it was a great experience. And then... I think from doing those, um, I had more of a real of, of realistic looking movies versus mm-hmm. you know um, these these lower budget found footage. Oh damn! Are, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> oh, my my phone just like just it, it's been like lit up this whole time, and then it just like shut off, and I was like, okay. did my phone just like short circuit on me? I was <laughs> <laughs> like, oh damn. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I had more realistic-looking uh, movies. Um, you know, they weren't all found footage. They looked like more... You had a real DP working on it. Yeah. And so I was able to cut a reel from those, and those re- that reel was able to get me more work. Okay. Do you have... A, was there a point in this process where you got an agent who was like, you know pitching you to different projects or how, how, what is the process or is so it just I've, reputation? I've done it. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. All on my own up until um, fairly recently, um, in the past like three, four months, um, I got a, a manager and a, um, uh, a an entertainment lawyer, and I'm I'm now uh, talking with agencies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, can you talk about shooting in Thailand? That's got to be pretty. Uh, it was it was interesting. A I'll tell you that much. Yeah. It was a crazy experience. Um, shooting in Thailand, uh, you know, uh, I had to have a translator for my translator. 
<laughs> and uh, you know, it, it was uh, it was crazy because you know we we pull up on a a boat in in the movie, and this boat comes up to um, uh, the house, and you know it looks cool, but that was actually the front lawn. It was supposed to be a cab, um, and we got so flooded that it had to be a boat because we were shooting during mm-hmm. monsoon season. So I had to like wade through water uh, up to my ankles. Wow. And I've never gotten more uh, mosquito bites in my life. <laughs> but it was yeah, also um, amazing. You know, it was, right. it was very, you know, a very amazing journey. And I, I don't think I'll soon forget it. Was it produced by, I mean, how did you guys end up there? What, what was the, the... So, Benetone Hillen is a uh, American slash Thai company. So, it has offices okay. in America and Thailand. Okay. So, it, it, it was always going to take place uh, in Thailand. Right. Now, you know, one of the things that we we deal with a lot is talking about the current state of kind of distribution film sales and things like that and you know one of the things that people the the thing that i hear from a lot of sales agents and people that deal with you know distribution is that you know that horror has become you know a couple of years ago it was like everybody all the horror movies were exploding and everything was you know that was what everybody wanted to make and then it just became oversaturated and I was wondering what your take was on the current kind of um, state of distribution of horror films and, and you know, that uh, I topic. <laughs> I definitely think that, you know, um, it's not oversaturated because there's just a, a such an appetite for it in the market. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, maybe sales-wise, uh, distributors are, are less inclined to pick up horror movies that don't have names in them. Uh, however, you know, you have you have the viewer that just loves watching horror. I mean, you know, the horror fans are, are very dedicated. You, you had mentioned something earlier about your, your film getting kind of screwed with uh, distribution. I was curious what, what happened there. Um, no comment. Just, just, just <laughs> okay. know, that, know that distributors are not always on the up and up and read the contract as best as you can. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Enough said. I understand. Uh yeah, that's that's one of the things. I mean, we're we're uh we we tried to teach about film sales. I mean, we have a uh uh an entire thing coming up that that talks about making distribution deals and, you know, well, understanding you see, how what what you get up front is is like what you're going to see. Like there's no such thing as a back end. I mean, like from for my experience because Somehow, no matter how much the movie makes, they're able to claim like, oh, well, this and this and this and this uh, cost us this. And so you you actually owe us money now. Right. I, they, they don't actually go that far as to say that, but I'm just being, you know, exaggerating. But it's like, you know, I don't understand how movies can sell so well on DVD and then yet somehow they claim like, well, it miraculously cost a bazillion dollars promote that even though you did all the promotions for it on your own there was an interesting i I was uh watching an interview with you talking about um a experience you had on a set before you made to jennifer where you and the producer kind of butt butted heads (laughs) and i was wondering if you could talk about that just a little bit because i think it's interesting that people you know when you look at filmmaking 
from an outsider's perspective, you, you don't really understand kind of what actually goes on. You know what I mean? I mean, it was, it was a low budget movie. Um, it was a strenuous situation and, uh, you know, it, it was a scene of nudity and they called for, uh, the actress asked for a close set, which is completely, you know, uh, standard operating procedure. And so, uh, everybody who wasn't essential had to leave the room and the producer flipped out and was like, you know, fuck that. I paid this chick to see your tits. And so she has like a meltdown, um, the producer's being super rude, and then, you know, he's basically telling me that I have to tell her that she has to go in there and, like, be naked, and he has to be allowed to see it, and I'm like, that's so unbelievably grimy and sleazy, and I don't want to be involved with that, and so he's like, you know, you either do this, or it's like, you know, my way or the highway, and mm -hmm. I said, the highway then, you know, I got fired off of that project. What is the, the the feel like when you're on set and are dealing with really kind of graphic violence? Is it obviously to the, the viewer, it's, it feels really horrifying and terrifying. But is it I mean, do you oh, kind of like, like the silliest, most fun time on set? Like, <laughs> okay. you know, you're seeing everything get built and like, you know, going through all the stages and everybody, you know, you, people light up when you have fake blood on set. Like it's like it's like it's like you know taking an energy shot. Everybody gets energetic again. So it's funny, it's, like you know the torture scenes in in Pernicious are brutal and disgusting, and like the behind the scenes is us like laughing while making these things. So it's like you know <laughs> it's, it's it's kind of funny to like you know people watch it and they're all grossed out and then like you know a take led and like all of us are like you know wow this is you know we just did this and everybody it's like a release you know tension and release. Now, you have talked to your friends with Eli Roth. If, if I, it, it seems very similar in a lot of ways. Like, has his have his films influenced you? I was very influenced by Eli's films. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, I mean, I got an elite hunting tattoo from Hostel on my chest when I was like, you know, <laughs> that's awesome. I got that right. tattooed on my chest. Uh, so, you know, I, I've always been a huge fan of Eli's movies. Um, and, you know, Eli's a, a really nice guy um, and uh, an unbelievably supportive person towards indie film. Now, anyway. your $7,000 film, how can you talk a little bit about how you put that together? I mean, what, what happened through, you know, walk us a little bit through the process of, of putting that together. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm, I'm going to sound so silly saying this, but it was so long ago, I, I'm not quite sure what the process was. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just remember I did it all wrong. <laughs> okay. And, well, I guess or or I can did, you even tell us, like, what, what you did wrong that you've learned since then? Like, what are some of the main mistakes you made with the first films you made and, and how you've corrected that? I didn't hire any crew. It was basically just, like, me, <laughs> one other person, a camera, a couple lights, uh a microphone that I was holding in my hand, I was like booming and, and mixing at the same time. And I had never mixed sound before. And then I ended up editing the movie. Like, you know, uh, I was pretty much probably running craft services as well. Uh, <laughs> it was like, just basically like me, my producer, another person, and then the actors. So like, you know, like, well, uh, it, it definitely, uh, I don't, I don't know what we did or how we put it together. It's, you know, it was like a, a scrappy ragtag thing and we managed to make a movie, um, which is, you know, amazing in a sense. Um, 
that's why, like, you know, I, I don't know how it happened. And I, I, I don't think I'll, I'll ever quite understand how it did now looking back. However, like, you know, uh, I, I've been spoiled since cause I'll have like crews, like, you know, my, my last crew was like a hundred plus people, you know, working on the movie. Um, not including the actors. Um, you know, like I actually had like departments and stuff. So it's like, you know, I, I, I would love to see, uh, you know, filmmakers go back to doing a movie with no crew and see what they can do. Cause, uh, <laughs> I, 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 like, you know, I, I've, I've produced projects since too. And like, you know, when I'm putting them together, I'm like, how are you going to do this without insurance? And how are you going to do this without this? And I'm like, you know, I, my first two movies, I didn't do it with any of that stuff. I just kind of went out there and did it. Um, so I think, you know, there, there's some magic in the idea of going out there and doing it. Um, that mm-hmm. like once you, once you move forward, it's, it's hard to go back to cause you don't remember how to. So I think part of the adventure is literally just going out there and doing it and going on that adventure, mm-hmm. you know, and you put it together however you can, you know, the first time you make a movie, if you don't have a lot of money, the only thing that matters is getting paid. Do you ever have like anxiety and, and things that you have to deal with when, when you're on the set and you, you, you know, learn how to kind of compartmentalize that as you get through the day? You know, I don't have anxiety on sets. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I've, I've been doing this for a while now. I've directed like 11 feature films. Right. And, um, you know, I've spent so much time on set that it just, you know, it's a, a fun, relaxing time for me that I, you know, I, I'm used to, and it's just, you know, everything is done in pre-production. You put it all together in pre-production and that's how you'll know how to, how to work it basically, you know, plan Mm -hmm. ahead. And you, if you plan everything, you'll be fine. Do you, what, what is your typical preparation? If you're going to go shoot a scene, do you have, um, a notebook full of the, the things that the shots that you're going to get and everything. How do you, how do you kind of plan for well, the day? I do, that's entire, coming? I do an entire shot list. And I work out okay. that shot list after I do it, you know, I'll shot list with the DP. Then I'll show that shot list to my AD. So my AD can schedule it correctly. Um, and then, you know, I will all have done all the pre-production with my art team. So they know how I want the room or wherever we're shooting the look. I'll talk with my DP about the look and feel so we know what, what our lighting setup and color is going to be. I'll draw mm-hmm. little diagrams of how I'm going to be blocking the actors for the scene so I'm not coming up with the blocking. I'm just naturally placing them where, where I need them so that my shot selection will work. So it's, you know, everything planning ahead. And I also write notes. Like I pre-direct where I'll write notes throughout my entire script since I've talked with all the actors about what their motivation is for certain things so that I can remind them, Hey, you know, we're thinking this in this place or like, you know, their moment before was this so that I can keep them in that moment. So I have notes throughout my entire script, but my script will have more of my handwriting than actual typing on it. Now the the post-production process, how long does that typically last? It it depends, you know, post-production, you can have a good fast and cheap, but you can only choose two. Right. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. It's it's if you want it good and fast, it's not going to be cheap, and if you want it <laughs> uh, good and cheap, it's not going to be fast, and if you want it, you know, fast and cheap, it's not going to be good. So <laughs> that's what you have to figure out. Are you involved? I mean, 
how important is, you know, you come from a background of promotion. And one of the things that we teach a lot is that filmmakers from the very beginning, when they first start a project, need to be making a connection with an audience. And I assume that now that you've, you know, you've, you've got a following, you've got people that, you know, know your name and know what's coming next. But can you talk a little bit about the, you know, things you learned when you were doing promotion and how to, you know, get the word out? Promote your stuff. I cannot stress that enough. Promote it as much as you possibly can. Build a Twitter following. If you're a filmmaker without a Twitter because you're like, oh, I don't really like Twitter or because, you know, I don't get it or whatever, then you're doing something wrong. You have to be on Twitter. You have to have something to promote your projects. You've got to work your social media. You have to be promoting yourself. Go on as many podcasts as possible. Go on, do as many written interviews as possible. Do as much stuff to promote your projects as possible. Always have constant press coming out or it will fade away. That's how there's, that's how a movie ceases to exist is, you know, you don't get the word out because you have to set yourself apart from all the other films. Because that's the one thing. The market does have a lot of films on the market, but not all of them are promoted. So if you promote your film a lot, it, it will seem more special than the ones nobody else has heard of. It takes Do you, times for somebody uh, to be exposed to something for them to be familiar with it. So you want them to be like, oh, look, they're talking about it on this website. Two days later, oh, look, it's on my news feed. They're talking about it on this website. Oh, look, it's over here. Maybe I should check that out. Do you rely on the distribution to do any publicity, or, or is that kind of like... Uh, I don't rely on anybody but myself. You know, when it comes to promotion, always rely on yourself. Okay. Nobody um, <laughs> care about promoting your movie more than you will. Do you think that's played a pretty uh, a big role in your career? Is is just having that that mindset of being like, I've got to promote this instead of saying, you know, a lot of the people I talk to, and I, I I've got a, a lot of friends actually that. You know, I, I come from a different generation of filmmakers and everything, and, and they don't necessarily understand that importance. And I, I've talked to a couple of filmmakers that I was like, so what's your what's your Twitter? You know, and they're like, what are you talking about? It's like, I don't I, I haven't really gotten into Twitter yet. And it's like, that's it. It doesn't that's make insane any to me. That's insane yeah. to me. Lucky Land Casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I think I think I wouldn't have a career if I didn't have to lunch. Yeah. So I think it's it's so paramount. It's so key that you, you just have to do it. You have to be keyed into it or it's, you know, you're wasting time because you're, what, you know, you're, you're making a movie nobody will see. If you were like, take for example, if you were hired on just to be in your, in your role as a producer, outside of producing the film, what are the key things that you would do to promote a film? Set up interviews, send out press releases, uh, make sure that we have behind the scenes videos, 
uh, make sure that the actors are doing interviews. It's, it's important that there's constant information coming out about this movie. Because not only is it A, hyping up for the release of the movie, but B, when Joe Schmo is walking through, you know, like, let's say a Walmart, and they see your movie there, and then they say, oh, I've never heard of this. Let me look it up on Google. You want something to pop up. You want them to be like, oh, look, all these people talked about it, or all these reviews mm-hmm. were there. You want something to pop up. Now, do you, when you're writing press releases, I mean, do you do you go directly to different places like um, Fangoria and places like that and say, hey, let me tell you about my movie? Yeah, I go directly. I, You know, I've developed an entire list of people that I go to. Hi, everybody at home. We had a little communication problem, but then I called James back, and here's the second half of the interview. Technology and everything, and, uh, you know, in my generation, we you know, had to rely on 16 millimeter. And if you even thought about shooting on a, a video camera, it just looked terrible, you know? No, definitely. Um, I think, you know, there's, there's pluses and minuses of both generations um, because there's pitfalls to having cameras be so accessible is that there's so many more indie films made now than there were back then. So <laughs> back then it was easier to get noticed and have a career after making a movie. I mean, mind you, they made much better movies, and it was harder to get a movie made. But once you did, it was easier to get attention for it. Mm -hmm. And now, because there's so many more options and so many more things, it's harder. Because, you know, people have Netflix now. They didn't have Netflix then. You know, back in the day, you'd watch a movie, you'd be lucky if it was released on you know, home video and before home video, you'd watch a movie and then it would just no longer exist. Like, you would never see it. Mm-hmm. You know? Now people are given the option of watching, you know, any 6,000 movies that they want to at any given point on their Netflix account. So, it's, it's, it's harder. <laughs> it's harder yeah. uh, to get attention, but not, but not harder to get it made. It's easier to get it made, but harder to get attention for it. So, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it it really feels like there are just thousands and thousands of like horror movies being made. It just it 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 baffles me how you being in your situation, how you can how you deal with that many. I, I assume that a lot of them are just not very good and just kind of like riffs on somebody else's film. I mean, how how do you see most of the films that I mean, do you do you see a lot of the ones that are just from like indie people, like, you know, making small films in their backyard and stuff like that? I, I, I watch a lot of them. And part of them kind of what inspired me to make my first one, because at, at such a young age, because I saw some really shitty movie that was probably made on like no budget. And I picked it up at a blockbuster and it was like, you know, really, really bad. You know, really mm-hmm. bad quality. Had to have been like only a couple thousand dollar budget. I picked it up at Blockbuster, watched it. I was like, if this movie could be made and go to Blockbuster and people watch it, like, I, you know, you tricked me into watching it, then I could definitely make something. <laughs> Which I what, don't know what, if that's the best uh-huh. uh, opinion to have, but, you know, at the time it definitely got me going. Well, I mean, it's it's important because it's what inspired you. I mean, sometimes it's it's intimidating to see the really high quality stuff, but sometimes seeing, being able to kind of see the matrix, seeing, okay, well, there might be 50,000 films being made every year, but probably, you know, 90% of those aren't very good. Yeah, Sorry? a large majority of them 
don't even huh. get released, you know. So what is it but, for you? Like when you're when you're writing a story and putting together a, a, a film, I mean what, what what do you do to really bring the audience in? What is there is there something that you see that that you've kind of learned to do that you see other filmmakers not really kind of catching on in terms of what brings people into a horror movie or a movie in general? Um, I mean, for me, I think it's like character study films. You know, the more mm-hmm. you make the movie about a soul person, the more we can relate because, you know, you want to connect with a person. If you can't connect with somebody, you can't enjoy the movie. But if you can connect with somebody in the movie, you're going to be like, oh, I care about what happens to this person. So making sure you have that connectable person and then basing it around that. Because a perfect example is, you know, you watch a TV show, you want to see what shenanigans on that TV show, whatever character you enjoy is going to get into that week. It doesn't mean they have to be the most likable person. Like, look at Breaking Bad. But he was fascinating, so we wanted to see what he was doing each week. We wanted to see how he was going to all work out for him. So what what are the films that have most influenced you and you, you kind of look at in terms of, like, I would like to be at this level. Old boy, the Korean version. Old boy? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's amazing. The Korean version of Old Boy. Yeah. The Shining. The Shining so those... or the Korean version of Old Boy. Okay. Or Bill Volume 1. So much more effective, the ability to kind of, like, take your time with a story, you know? I like movies that take their time. I like those stories. But I understand why as well, because, you know... I'll find myself scrolling through Netflix trying to choose a movie and then I'll look at the runtime and be like, do I really want to sit down for two and a half hours right now or do I want to watch like an hour and a half movie real quick and be done? You know right. what I mean? So I understand why in the U.S. is we're kind of more ADD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I've heard a lot of people talk about like the American film market and that now, you know, a lot of buyers will come in and they'll only watch the first 10 minutes of your movie. So people will even do, they'll go so far as to, if they have a monster movie, they'll even put the monster at the beginning of the movie, which is kind of like the worst thing you can do. It kind of kills the mystery. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. hundred percent. We now have this thing in horror movies that you want to put teaser. You got to have a kill happen in like the first scene. Mm-hmm. So that when they're watching the movie, they're like, Oh shit, this movie's going to be crazy. <laughs> it's the same thing with Netflix. Like, you know, somebody will watch the first five minutes on Netflix. If they get bored, they'll turn it off and go to the next movie. So you got to grab them in that first 10 minutes. It's also why you see so many movies that have a really good first 10 minutes and then the rest of the movie's crap. <laughs> yeah, I have kind of noticed that. You know, it's it's funny because I was talking to another screenwriter who was talking about how the, the format has changed and filmmakers have started changing their beginnings so that you know the the a lot of movies start in their second act or the end almost towards the third act and then they and then they go back and start it over because and one of the reasons why they started doing that kind of structure was because they needed to have something really interesting in the beginning you know what i mean like the sto- the the i can't think of a good example now but you know it'll have like the part where the the protagonist is right you know, at their lowest moment, you know, and then it'll go back to the beginning of the first act. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I mean, and that's kind of purely look, that kind of idea. Look at John Wick. We saw the end of the movie before the beginning. Right. Yeah, exactly. So do you, uh, now that you deal a lot with video on demand, do you have any sort of um, insight into working with like, I mean, I know you deal with, you have other people that deal with a lot of that, but what is your take on the current kind of state of, distribution and video on demand and Netflix and iTunes and all that stuff. 
I think it's all going to go VOD soon. Like DVD, Blu-ray, it's all going to be phased out. It's all going to be VOD. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, you'll buy a movie and have a login and it'll last forever with your login in the cloud. So you'll have your own personal Netflix of all your own movie collection just in the cloud wherever you go. You know? <laughs> right. Um, eventually. Um, yeah. I'm also shocked that this hasn't happened yet, but I feel like at some point very soon, we're going to see curated Netflix. You know, because why wouldn't you, like, you know, you turn on Netflix and it goes, you know, top 10 films recommended by Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're trying to figure out what to watch. You don't want to watch the top 10 films that Quentin Tarantino thinks you should watch. Or like the top 20 films that Seth Rogen thinks is funny. Right. I think that's going to end up being like a thing. That's actually a really good idea. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a thing very soon. But they have a little bit of that with like Rotten Tomatoes, you know, because you can see the uh, like this actor's favorite movies and stuff. But you can't. There's yeah, no direct link there. Have just like an actual thing on Netflix, like type in your favorite actor, celebrity, and they'll give you their recommendations. Is it still as mysterious the numbers? that come from VOD, like in terms of what they're pulling? I mean, do they, I know that Netflix is like one thing where they don't really tell people how much, how well they're doing or whatever, but is there, you know, what do you do after a film goes on to VOD? Do you have any concept of how popular it is or how much? um, Yeah, you can check, you can check sales like constantly. I mean, not on Netflix. Netflix just does an outright buyout, but you'll know how popular it is. You won't know how popular it is in comparison to the other movies. Mm-hmm. Because, like, let's say your movie is ranked, like, like 200 and another movie is ranked, like, 10. You don't know what the difference between 200 and 10 is. Mm-hmm. But you know how well yours is doing. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. Is there... Um, what What is, like, for you, what has been the most... Uh, I guess, profitable, like, platform that's out there? Well, my most profitable movies um, have all been ones where uh, I don't get to access all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, those are the ones where, like, I've, you know, been hired to write and direct and a producer or a production company is dealing with all that right. stuff. And then I've been, I've been bought out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how have you, like... Have you been, are are you working with a producer and people that are doing a lot of that stuff for you? Or has there been um, one of your films recently, like, I don't know what the situation was with Bethany or um, any of the films that well, you've Bethany done? Bethany hasn't been released yet, you know? Okay. So, but do, do they already have like a built-in distribution deal and all that? Or do you, are you going to go like we to the... We pre-sold Bethany. Okay. I, I, I financed the movie off of the pre-sales. Okay. Is there any, can you discuss how that works a little bit or, or is that like kind of top secret? <laughs> it's, you, know, you get a concept for a movie, uh-huh. you talk to a distributor, you find out what the market trend is. You have a distributor that's interested in working with you because they wanted one of your other movies that they didn't acquire. And then you say, if I make something within that wheelhouse with these people in it, what would you pay for it? They write on a piece of paper, I pay this much money, they sign a contract guaranteeing that kind of money, and then you show that to an investor saying, hey, if I make this, I get this kind of money. Mm-hmm. 
and then they go, okay, well, then it makes sense to, you know, risk this much money for it. Okay. But they're not actually giving you, I mean, they're giving you the, um, what's it called? The uh, minimum guarantee. Is that right? Yeah. A minimum guarantee. Okay. So you, you can go to your investors and say, okay, this distribution company has, you know, um, so you don't, you're not risking it. You know that you're going to have a buyer if these things, is there any like legal like thing that says, Hey, you know, what if they decide that they're not interested in it after that? Or, or does that ever happen? Well, you know, from my experience, what we structured is like a deal that, um, you know, they were involved from the beginning. They were involved in development. So like they knew every step of the way what was going on. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they were involved. You know? Right. And is that, that's the actual distribution company or is that a sales agent? The actual distribution company. Okay. And they, they do like your, like they have worldwide rights and everything after the, the film is given to them or, or what, how does that work? Yeah. But you know, like we're going to work together to sell the foreign rights. So like we'll be taking it to the market together and yada, yada, yada. Okay. So are you going to AFM this year to like, Oh yeah, I'll be there. Have you been there before? I assume. Every what uh, what is that like? How, how has your experience been there? Every single movie has the same actor on the poster every year. <laughs> it's like one of three actors that like rotate every year. It's like the, on every poster. And is that Eric Roberts? I'm, I, I can't say who it is. <laughs> I will not. But every every poster has actors on it. <laughs> and yeah. it, so I, for, you can just tell me if this is right or wrong. You know, I mean, from what I understand, the the most of the distribution companies are primarily looking for a really good trailer and a really good poster. Yeah, and much. How how much can you talk about? I mean, not in terms of of your films necessarily, because I know you you probably don't want to give away too much. But I mean, um, what what is like the can you talk about budget levels at all? I mean, are you, are we talking like half a million dollar movies or are we, are they all over the place? They're all what, over what the is, place. Okay. They're all over the place. Yeah. But I mean, say like, say for example, a indie filmmaker wants to make a horror movie, um, doesn't have any stars, has a concept. What, where should they go with that? Do you think they should talk to a sales agent before they ever make it or? Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Should they kind of like see what, what the market is like? How can people kind of What's hedge the their concept? bets? What's the concept? Is it high concept? You know, like, I mean, is it a high concept right. idea? Um, you know, it, it all depends on what the concept is and what the market trend is, you know? Mm-hmm. And then you want to make sure that you're on the on the up of the trend, not on the down of the trend. 
if that makes sense. Like, you know, found footage was really big a while ago, but don't make a found footage movie now. You know okay. what I mean? You have to make sure you're on like the, the right trend. Like a couple years ago, everybody wanted a dragon movie. A movie that was <laughs> a dragon in it. I'm right. not kidding. Like that was like every buyer at AFM was like, do you have a dragon movie? So everybody okay. was rushing around trying to get dragon movies made. And now like you bring a dragon movie to, this was like two years ago, you bring a dragon movie to AFM, nobody wants a dragon movie because I'm not a dragon <laughs> movie. Like a year get out of here with your dragon movie. Yeah. They got too many damn dragon movies. You know? <laughs> right. I'm not kidding. So it's like, you know, you gotta, you gotta like know where the trend is and try and be ahead of it instead of, you know, being on the tail end with a dragon movie that won't sell. So there's that one poor guy in the corner with his dragon movie that nobody pays attention to. There's like one dude who has like eight dragon movies going on. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm I'm kidding. There probably isn't, but you know you got to be you got to be smart. Um, so what's the trend now? What's the big thing right. that everybody's going after? Um, you know, I, I don't know if I should say. <laughs> no, uh, well, because I don't want, it's not that I don't want people to, to do it. It's that I don't want people to quote me on it being the trend because then by the time they probably get the movie started and made and finished and ready to be sold, it won't be the trend anymore. Right. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, cause it usually it'll take like a year all through financing, creating all of that to get the movie finished and, and ready to be sold. So by that time it won't be, it won't be popular anymore. You see what right. I'm saying? So like yeah. right now, uh, you know, talking animal movies are, are bigger. <laughs> so. But I, you know, in like, <laughs> in like a year, I don't know if they will be. Because two years ago, dragon movies was all everybody wanted. <laughs> I mean, it's tough, you know, it's, it's, I've heard a lot of, you know, we've talked a lot about AFM on the show and it, it's difficult to be a filmmaker who's just following, trying to like find what's going to be the next big trend. You know what I mean? That's why, you know, you don't want to be that filmmaker. You want to be the person that gets hired to do those kinds of movies because somebody else is already following those trends. So you'll see somebody who's like, yep, all right, we're making a dragon movie. And it's like, you know, they were, they knew two years ago that they were making that dragon movie because, you know, uh, an <laughs> right. ASM fire, somebody had mentioned, hey, you got that dragon movie? You know, dragon, how many dragon movies have you seen? But like, it, it really is a thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I have seen a dragon movie in, in a very long time, but I'll, I'll take your word on that. It wasn't the American buyers that wanted it. it uh -huh. Foreign buyers wanted dragon. <laughs> well, talk about that for just a second. I, I know you got to go, and I'm, I'm kind of like wrapping up. But I mean, can you? Um, do you have any advice for what things are? You know, on a purely like looking at a film that will sell internationally, what are some of the the kind of rules that uh, that you can follow? I think with horror, you'll be all right if you stick to you know try and do something that's more elevated. Try and do something that's more, you know, of a supernatural type horror film. You know, something that you can picture like uh, like a date night horror film. You know what I mean? Like, which is funny because a lot of my movies aren't like that. They're super intensely gross and violent. Try to stay away from the crazy violent um, and do more of the, the other kinds of scares because that seems to be what the foreign market likes the most. Yeah, I've heard Japan is a very good market. Yeah. Well, like Japan will be like, I want a giant robot movie. <laughs> okay. But like, I want a giant monster movie. And they'll explain, like, how big they want the monster. Like, they'll, they'll literally, you know, uh, asylums 
sells so many other movies. Like, Japan loves those creature-type things. You know, those disaster creature, sci-fi-type stuff. That's another thing that's also kind of, we're still in that, that moot area for, for the market so people can understand, where nobody quite understands yet or knows how much, even not amazing VFX, but how much visual effects cost. Sometimes, you know, you, you, even if it's not amazing, you still have a lot of visual effects. I mean, it, it had to cost something. So, you know, budgets are able to seem higher when you have a lot more of those visual effects types. Right. Why you see a lot of those heavily visual effects movies come out is because, you know, buyers aren't able to always tell that it's a lower budget production, but it has, you know, a couple names and a lot of visual effects. If you do like a giant monster movie, you know, did you spend like, you know, a million dollars or did you spend two million dollars? It's kind of that level of like, who knows? So you're able to get more money for that kind of thing. I mean, a lot of these, I I would say well below a million dollars, to be honest, you know, I mean, it's from what... <laughs> budgets, budgets, that's the one thing in, in movies. Budgets are always this, this ephemeral thing that, like, you know, nobody's ever quite clear on how much has been spent on anything. Because everybody, nobody ever wants to say how much they spent, which is why, you know, people got all surprised when I did uh, to Jennifer and I told everybody I spent 500 bucks. <laughs> everybody else wants to, like, be like, oh, well, you know, it's under a million. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I, I was talking to um, some other people that deal in distribution and they were talking about how, you know, if you shoot something for ridiculously cheap, like, you know, one of the big things was, you know, Robert Rodriguez and those stories. But unless that's like a really big part of the story, you know, how cheaply you sold it. The other side is you always want to tell distribution companies and and sales agents and everybody that you paid a lot more because that becomes like a a tool for them to negotiate. Because if they know the movie was made for $50,000, they're going to be like, oh, well, they're going to calculate how much you need to make and, and make their offers based on that. You know, are there any mistakes that you see filmmakers making? I mean, are there common things that it's like if they just changed this little thing or that little thing, they they would be doing a lot better. Yeah. Um, not getting adequate coverage that, and then also not promoting their stuff. You know, I don't, you don't know how many times I see somebody make a movie and then they're just like, oh, I'm done. <laughs> Right. Can can you go into that just a little bit? The the coverage part. You know what is that something that happened on your first films that you got into the editing bay and kind of didn't yeah, have. You know, I mean, now I I get in every scene, no matter what, I get what I call general coverage. Unless I structured the scene to be a oneer, but I'll get general coverage, which is like you know your master, your close ups, your over the shoulders, and like a couple inserts. That's no matter what, I get that. And then I start going in for my finesse, like adding the style and stuff to what I want to get. So that no matter what, I at least have something to cut the scene together. Because nothing sucks more than being in the edit bay and going, oh, man, I needed like five more shots and didn't have it. Do you ever do um, storyboards? Yeah, when there's time and money for it, for sure. You know, then you can really set the mood of the scene. Plus, like, you know, audiences nowadays, like, cut of your movie. Yes. What about yeah, shooting like action scenes and stuff like that? Is there any kind of like different way of, of dealing with that? Yeah, Do you like to say what? Sorry, go ahead. Get a shit ton of coverage. <laughs> you know? Get right. so much coverage. All right, man. Well, awesome. I, I really appreciate you coming on the, the show and, and sharing all this stuff. Um, is there any way, you know, can I give people your info in, t- in terms of like, can they follow you on Twitter? Are there any Yeah, websites follow me like on promote? Twitter. Follow me on Twitter at James Cullen B. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, reach out and say hi. <laughs> okay.
All right, and your your new film, Bethany. What's what should we expect with that? Is that going to be out? Um, uh, it should be out early next year, and it is. Uh, I think it's my best film, and it's uh, it's it's really freaky, and uh, <laughs> it's some uh, some ghosty type stuff. No dragons, though, right? Well, it's a ghost dragon. <laughs> okay. No, there's no dragon. No dragon. <laughs> you don't want to be that guy. I think we just came up with the title of somebody's next movie. Somebody needs to make a movie called Ghost Dragon. <laughs> Ghost Robot Dragon. You just want to make sure you got your Japanese market in there. Ghost Dragon Robots. <laughs> now we got a few of them. Damn, man. I wish we hadn't said that. I'm going to have to cut that out because that's... that's yeah, well, and, and I think we should have Gary Busey voice the Ghost Dragon <laughs> Robots. And we'll be set. It'll be like the land before ghost dragon robots, you know, the never-ending ghost dragon robot story. Have you ever been in a screening and somebody's like, you know what this needs, man, is more Busey? <laughs> I, I, I feel like I'm in every screening and I say that. Every <laughs> you know? There's nothing that's not better with a little Busey in it. Just throw him I, in there. I don't care what he does. You know, I'm, I'm like half joking, but at the same time, like, I think like, one of the most ingenious things ever was uh, this movie made by Full Moon called uh, The Gingerbread Man. And uh, <laughs> it was about a killer gingerbread man voiced by Gary Busey, which was like the, the <laughs> most awesome thing ever. Man, I would definitely watch that. I, would, I watched it. It was awesome. <laughs> it was so awesome. I've watched it many times now. <laughs> like, that I watched. It's your go-to. That's my go-to. That's my dragon movie. <laughs> All right, man. I appreciate it. I'm going to take off, but uh, it's it's been a pleasure, my friend. Thanks for, for calling and talking to us. All right. Thank you so much. All right. That's going to do it for today. I want to thank my guest, James Cullen Brissac, for coming on the show. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Academy podcast. Don't forget to join our newsletter for more tips and tricks on how to make and market your film online. Go to www.indiefilmacademy.com. How's about that box? Dallas? You're going to have to hold your position for a minute. I... I've lost the signal. What? You sure? Look around. Are you sure that it's not there? I mean, it's got to be around there somewhere. Check that out, Lambert. You may be getting interference. Dallas, are you sure there is no sign of it? I mean, it is there. It's got to be around there. Dallas? I'm not playing around, but I want to get the hell out of here. Oh, God. It's moving right towards you. Uh. Move. Get out of there. Move. Yes. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.